speak tonight. Uh, I suspect this is probably going to be a fairly familiar passage for most of you. Uh, we're going to be going over the book of Mark, chapter 5, tonight. Um, the, so the three main things that uh, Mark details in this, uh, there, this begins with the uh, healing of the garrison man that was possessed by demons. Uh, and then we learn that Jesus is able to multitask far better than I am because he deals with raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. And on the way to Jairus' house, he heals the woman with the issue of blood. So just for the, the sake of context, uh, at the end of Mark 4, Jesus is crossing the Sea of Galilee. He falls asleep in the boat. And uh, this is when he calms the storm and demonstrates his power over uh, nature and so now we're moving on uh, into into chapter 5 so I'm going to start out uh, by reading Mark 5 1 through 20 um, this is the the healing of the man with the demon so I'll start out with that and then we'll go from there so book of Mark chapter 5 uh, beginning with verse 1 they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I assure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, meaning Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I don't know about you, but I love maps. Uh, I, when I was a teenager, I was given a, a book about the Battle of the Bulge, which was in Europe in World War II. I think the thing must have had somewhere between 10 and 15 maps breaking down exactly what happened. I was absolutely thrilled. I think it was a highlight of my Christmas that year when I got that. Uh, I think I still have the book downstairs on a bookshelf, which means my wife is very gracious to put up with my pack rat tendencies. 
So when I started looking at this, one of the first things I did was to go back and, and take a look at some maps and figure out just exactly where is this. Uh, I know a few of the provinces of Rome. I mean, I know where Judea is. I know where Gaul is. I have no idea where the Decapolis is. That was not something that I knew off the top of my head when I started this. So if you kind of have a mental image in your mind of the Holy Land, uh, you know the Sea of Galilee is up near the top, near the north end of the Holy Land. The Jordan River runs directly north-south, and the, the Dead Sea is down near the southern end of Israel. So the Decapolis region is mostly east of the Jordan River. So it started about halfway up the Sea of Galilee, and it ran primarily to the south and into the east of the Sea of Galilee. So this is, this is kind of the region we're talking is, is kind of east and slightly south of the Sea of Galilee on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So if you look over the maps of when uh, the tribal allotments were made to uh, the 12 tribes of Israel when they entered the Promised Land, you'll see that this area at the time was actually given to uh, East Manasseh. Um, so this was theoretically an area that was supposed to be under Israeli control. However, we also know from reading uh, in, in the Old Testament that the Jews did not do a great job of actually pushing the pagans out of the area. So this was an area that was had a historical association with Israel, but is, Israel's control over this area was, was sporadic at best. Uh, we know that during the height of the kingdom of Israel under David and under Solomon, these were area, this was an area that was controlled by the Jews and, and was a part of Israel. But we also know that pretty soon after uh, the kingdom split into the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, this area kind of broke away and, and this came under the control of Syria. So by the time we're dealing with here in this passage, uh, by the time Christ the time of Christ, this was an area that was not really a Jewish area. Uh, there may have been a loose association with it in the past, but this was primarily a, an area full of Gentiles at this time. Evidence of this is the fact that there is a herd of 2,000 pigs wandering around right next to the Sea of Galilee. Pigs, of course, were unclean animals under Jewish law, certainly would not be expected to be present in such large numbers in an area uh, that was controlled by the Jews and, and that was run by the Jews. So this is one of the uh, more unusual situations in Christ's ministry where he is actually going outside of the area. He spent a lot of time in Judea. He spent a lot of time in Galilee. He spent a lot of time teaching to Jews and ministering to Jews. This is one of the few times where he actually left Jewish areas and began ministering in, to the Gentiles. <clears throat> so... Picking up the story here, as soon as Christ steps out of the boat, he's met by the demon-possessed man. So this man lived among the tombs. He had been shackled with the chains for his own protection, but he had broken them. So verse 4 said nobody has the strength to subdue him. Verse 5 says the man was constantly crying out, cutting himself with stones. Um, Matthew Henry notes that under Jewish law, just touching a grave made one ceremonially unclean. That's where this man lived. I mean, that was, that was who he was and where he lived. Um, this was a this was a difficult situation. Society had done their best to try to to help this man, to try to protect this man. Uh, but when he broke the shackles that bound him, he really there, there was nothing else society could do. He was a lost cause. This was someone who was hopeless, who was was broken, and society didn't know what to do with him. The best thing to do was just to try to avoid the area and avoid where he was and stay away from him. 
So verse 6, we see that as soon as the man saw Jesus, he ran and fell down in front of him. Now, we're not sure exactly what this could be. This could be one of two things. This could be the demons themselves involuntarily submitting to the authority of Christ. Um, One would think that the demons would not naturally want to be in the vicinity of Christ, but that could have been an involuntary uh, submission to Christ's authority. It also could have been a a situation where the man himself longed to be freed and recognized Christ as his only hope of salvation. We're not sure. Scripture doesn't clarify which one of these motivations was involved here. Could have been a mixture of the two. Uh, But in any event, the demons immediately took over the man's voice and began speaking to Jesus. So in verse 7, the demon cries out, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I assure you by God, do not torment me. I think in our day and age, sometimes we fail to recognize the significance of this statement. I mean, my context as a, as a believer in 2023 is I'm reading this in the book of Mark. This is one of the four gospels. This is contained in the Bible. The whole theme of the Bible to some degree is Christ as the son of God and, and Christ's coming for our salvation. So In context, I'm going to look at that, and my natural reaction is, well, of course the demon is going to acknowledge Christ as the Son of God. That's the natural order of things. That's what I expect to see here. So what? That's a very significant statement for a couple of reasons. I mean, I I think we need to remember, uh, and I think we know this, but don't always think about it, just how controversial Christ's claim to be the Son of God was at the time. I mean, this was the primary thing that led the religious leaders in Israel, or the the Jewish religious leaders, to persecute Christ and and to push the Roman authorities to crucify him. Uh, They viewed it as blasphemy. Additionally, We know from Scripture that Satan throughout human history has been at war with God. Uh, The last thing these demons would have wanted to do is to acknowledge the authority that Christ had uh, and and to give honor to Christ as the Son of God. That's not at all a normal thing or a natural thing for them to do. So I I think sometimes we forget about that as we read over this, just how, how big a deal it was to actually have the demons themselves acknowledge him as the Son of God. The other thing that, uh, that I would draw from this, I, it's apparent that the demons did not know Christ's plans as they were asking, what have you to do with me? Um, I find that to be an encouragement. Satan is undoubtedly powerful. I mean, there's, there's no question of that. But he's not able to read the mind of God, and he doesn't know the future. And I think we can see glimpses of that in this passage, and I, I find that to be an encouragement. So, verse 9, Christ asks the demon's name. He responds, my name is Legion, for we are many. Uh, A legion, the Roman legion, I I suspect most of us have heard of the Roman legions at one point or another. That was the most common uh, basic unit. They could be broken down into smaller units, but typically if you were moving a a unit into an area, it was a legion. They they marched together, they fought together. A full-strength legion was usually around 6,000 men. So this was quite a significant number. We don't know exactly how many demons were involved here, but obviously this was a, a very significant number. Um, so in verse 10, the demons are begging Christ not to send them out of the country. And in verse 13, Christ allows them to go in the nearby herd of pigs. Uh, and the demons drowned around 2,000 pigs. Piers, they ran over a cliff into the Sea of Galilee. So 
we kind of have this, you know, verses 1 through 13 is kind of the initial story. And then 14 through 20, we kind of have the reaction of the countryside. Again, Christ is not in a, a Jewish area. This is the reaction from the Gentiles in the area. Uh, the first thing that happened is the, the herdsmen that had this herd uh, fled the area to go tell people what's going on. In my own mind, the, the picture I have is the situation where the, the landscaping employee is driving the boss's F-350. He stopped at a stop sign. He's doing everything he's supposed to, and somebody rear-ends him and totals out the truck. The first thing the guy's going to do is go tell his boss, boss, I was doing exactly what I was supposed to. It's not my fault the truck's totaled. Because, again, I suspect these guys did not own the herds themselves, uh, and obviously the loss of 2,000 pigs would be pretty significant if you happened on your watch. So verse 15, people came out to investigate what was going on. Uh, obviously, this is an unusual situation. Uh, and they saw the demon-possessed man clothed in his right mind, presumably talking with Jesus, and they were terrified. Matthew Henry points out, uh, if the people of the region would have parted from their sins, Christ had life and happiness for them. But, being but as they were loath to quit either their sins or their swine, they chose rather to abandon their Savior. Thus, they were afraid. They begged Jesus to leave the region. So before Christ left, um, we see the formerly demon-possessed man begging to be allowed to go with Christ. And Christ told him uh, to tell his friends what the Lord had done for him and how he's had mercy on you. He told him to stay in the area. Um, there's a couple of possible reasons behind this. Some have suggested that effective Christian living begins at home, where people know us the best. If we honor God there we can consider offering ourselves for service elsewhere. I think that, that makes a certain amount of sense. I also think it's not an insignificant thing uh, that Christ here was telling this man to go preach and, and to go tell people what Christ had done in the Decapolis region. This was likely a Gentile man. Uh, we don't know that for certain, but it's likely a Gentile. Certainly the region he was going to, and he was going to be testifying as to God's grace and, and the work of Christ in his life, was primarily a Gentile region. Uh, so, in effect, this man became one of the first missionaries uh, to the Gentiles. Uh, he, in some ways, foreshadows the work that Paul did later when he took the gospel to the Gentiles uh, after Christ's resurrection. So, takeaways from this, this first part. Um, number one, Christ demonstrates his authority over the spiritual realm. Uh, there was no question that this man was, un was, was being oppressed by unclean spirits. Yet Christ showed in a powerful way that he could command the unclean spirits and they were compelled to obey. I also think it's significant that Christ demonstrated his power was not limited to Jewish areas. He was not just the Savior and Messiah for the Jews, but he had power and authority even outside of traditionally Jewish areas. And Christ had the ability to rescue a possessed man who was presumably a Gentile. In the ancient world, this was an unusual thing. Uh, they didn't have nearly the same melting pot of religions and beliefs and these types of things. This was a big deal, that he was actually, Christ was not just Lord and Messiah for the Jews, but he was intending to reach a broader, uh, mankind as a whole, not just the Jews. So uh, at the request of the people of the Decapolis region, uh, Christ leaves. He crosses the Sea of Galilee and goes back into Galilee, which, again, this, uh, the Sea of Galilee is at the north of Israel. The region of Galilee is to the west of the Sea of Galilee. This is where Nazareth is. This is uh, where Jesus' hometown was and, and where he spent a lot of time. So Christ then will heal both Jairus' daughter and the woman with the issue of blood. So I'm going to go ahead and read Mark 5:21 through the end of the chapter. 
uh, just to give us the, the overall context here. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. <clears throat> then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said... If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately, excuse me, immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house, the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people wailing, weeping loud, excuse me, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talithia Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So again, here we have uh, the contrast. Jesus is now back in the area, uh, into Jewish area, and he's actually dealing with uh, one of the leaders of the Jewish synagogue. I think one of the things that stands out in this passage is the the many contrasts between the ruler of the synagogue or the leader of the synagogue and this anonymous woman that Jesus heals along the way. Uh, Jairus was the leader of the synagogue. That means he was a prominent man in the community. He was likely quite well off financially. That was very common in that time. Uh, The synagogue leaders were responsible for organizing and teaching synagogue services. Many of the synagogue leaders were Pharisees. Uh, As you know, the religious leaders as a body drove most of the Jewish opposition to Christ. They were the ones that were ultimately behind the crucifixion and and behind convincing Pontius Pilate to crucify Christ. We do not know whether Jairus, uh, excuse me, Jairus specifically was a Pharisee, but if he was not a Pharisee himself, he certainly ran in circles where there were a lot of Pharisees um, and he would have been surrounded by them. Jairus was almost certainly going against the opinion of his friends and his colleagues in approaching Christ, but his desperation to save his daughter overrode these concerns. By contrast, when you look at the anonymous woman with the issue of blood, she was in a completely different place in society at this time. Um, This woman had suffered from this disease for 12 years uh, and had suffered much under many physicians. 
feels a lot like uh, I, I don't go through anything like this, but uh, I know the experience of going to the dentist's office. They poke you in the mouth with sharp metal objects and blame you for not flossing enough when your gums bleed. I, I don't know how that works exactly. Most people can't get away with that. Um, so I, I certainly don't know the same extent what she's gone through, but I mean, in Scripture it says that she suffered much under many physicians. Um, <clears throat> the other thing is while Jairus led in the synagogue, this issue of blood that the woman was dealing with made her ceremonially unclean, which means she probably had not been able to go to the temple to worship for 12 years. Um, this woman had already spent all she had on physicians. It made her no better, but rather she grew worse. Um, while Jarius was likely popular and wealthy, this woman was bankrupt and could not go out in public without warning others that she was ceremonially unclean to avoid contaminating this woman, can, oh, to avoid contaminating them. Uh, it's not quite leprosy, but it was a it was a very difficult situation for her. Uh, this woman also, I believe, sought Christ out of desperation. So part of, I think, what Mark is showing us here is that Christ did not come just to save the popular, the wealthy, and the well-connected, but he came just as much to save the broken, the destitute, and the outcast. I think the common thread, we've, I've spoken of the desperation that they both shared. I think the, the other common thread between these two is their faith. Uh, we see in verses 22 and 23, Jairus sought out Christ, fell at his feet, and pleaded with Christ to lay hands on his daughter so that she would live. In verse 28, the woman said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So Christ agrees to go to Jairus' house to heal his daughter. He's followed by the crowd. That's verse 24. Along the way, the crowd is jostling Christ. And the woman with the issue of blood slips into the crowd and touches Christ's garment and is immediately healed. So that's verses 27 through 29. Again, this woman was considered ceremonially unclean, so anything she touched was rendered unclean for the rest of the day. That's The laws on that are found in Leviticus 15. This is why the woman came forward with fear and trembling when Christ asked who had touched him. I believe Christ knew who it was that had touched him, um, but he had asked the question so this healing would be made public. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, number one, Christ answered this woman with compassion. He told her to go in peace and that her faith made her well. That's verse 34. Christ here was, was showing his power was greater uh, than the power of the ceremonial laws that were set forth in Leviticus. Additionally, Christ was showing great compassion to this woman. She had been an outcast for 12 years, uh, yet Christ took the time to speak tenderly to her, to call her daughter, and to send her on away with a benediction of peace. Christ was not just offering physical healing to this woman, but he was also offering spiritual healing to her as well. Third, and I think finally, and there's in some ways, um, Christ did this in part to offer some encouragement to Jairus. Uh, Christ knew that there was a messenger on the way to Jairus telling him his daughter was dead, and I think this was intended also as encouragement to Jairus. So while Christ is still speaking uh, after healing this woman, a messenger came to Jairus' home to inform him that his daughter was dead. No reason to trouble the teacher any further. He's too late. This is verse 35. Now, as a parent, um, I have to imagine that this was probably the worst moment of Jairus' life. I, I don't think it gets any harder than that. Um, Christ overheard this message, and his response to Jairus was, Do not fear, only believe. That's verse 36. One of pastor's sayings is putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. I think Christ did that here. He really cut to the heart of the issue and said, do not fear, only believe. 
So Christ separates himself from the crowd uh, and only allows Peter, James, and John to come with him to Jairus' house. That's verse 37. Uh, Christ gets to Jairus' house and confronts the professional mourners. Now, in that culture, in that society, when someone died, you had professional mourners that came in. So there's a couple of things we can draw from this. Number one, it's proof that the girl was dead. No family would call out the professional mourners while someone was just in a coma or was asleep. She was dead. This was, we're done here. Um, so at that point, um, Christ tells them, on verse 39, Christ tells them that the girl was not dead. She was sleeping. So this is, this is one of those things that I struggle with a little bit here because it's clear that she's dead. Uh, and yet we have Christ saying she only sleeps. Now, maybe he's speaking metaphorically, and we understand that. I think we can also look to 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 13 through 18. I think that's uh, the second part of this. So when, when believers die, it is as sleep, and we see that in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So I think Christ's speaking here was intended as a word of encouragement, a word of hope to the family. That this is not permanent. She is not dead. So Christ clears everyone out of the house except the parents. Um, he takes Peter, James, John, and the parents and goes in and raises this woman. Uh, it touches, takes the girl by the hand and raises her back to life. Again, touching the girl's dead body technically would have rendered Christ ceremonially unclean. That's Leviticus 24, uh, excuse me, Leviticus 22, verses 4 through 6. Christ, again, is showing that he is more powerful than both death and the Jewish ceremonial laws. So then we get to verse 43, and Christ charges the family that no one should know what had happened to him. Now, this is in direct contrast to what he just did with the Gerasene man earlier in the chapter. So why, why is he handling these differently? Why is, there, why is this he, raising this girl from the dead done, and the command is don't tell anyone anything, and yet... When he heals the demon-possessed man, he tells him to go tell his friends what Jesus had done for him. So I think there's a, a couple of reasons here. Uh, for one thing, one of the constant struggles that Jesus wrestled with was uh, he came to establish a spiritual kingdom, and he came as a spiritual Messiah, and the Jews were continually expecting him to create a, to, to host a military revolution. They were looking for a political leader that would overthrow the hated Romans and put the Jews back in power. Uh, and so I mean, we see that throughout uh, the Gospels. We see Jesus' own disciples arguing with him about these things. We see Peter, when they came to seize uh, Jesus, Peter pulls out a sword. He's, he's ready for the revolution. He's ready to rock and roll here. And that's not what Jesus came for. He came for our spiritual salvation first and foremost. 
In contrast, in the Decapolis region, the Gentiles didn't have that expectation. They were not carrying that baggage. There was no expectation amongst the Gentiles that a Jew would rise up to free them from the Romans. That just was not even on the horizon there. And so I think there was a lot less danger of confusing the issues uh, in the Decapolis region than there was uh, for, for Jarius. The other thing is, uh, while the miracles that Christ performed attest to the authenticity of Christ's message that the kingdom of God is at hand, he wasn't looking for people who were just thrill-seekers, just there to see the miracles. Um, And I think there was much less danger of that in the Decapolis region because Christ did not spend a lot of time there. He didn't minister there. He didn't teach a lot there. And that was something that he was much less likely uh, to draw that type of attention seeker than in Galilee. So Christ goes through this. Um, it says, just for way of context, uh, when you start into chapter 6, which we're not really going to deal with that a lot here, but uh, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 6, Christ then goes to Nazareth, which is not too far away. Um, and he was rejected by the people of Nazareth, who looked at him and said, Is this not the carpenter? We know this guy. He grew up around us. He wasn't anything special. This is Mary and Joseph's son. Why should we follow him? Why should we believe in him? So uh, it's, there's a certain amount of irony there that after Christ, at the end of chapter 4, calms the sea, shows his authority over nature. He shows his authority over the spiritual realm, both inside of Jewish areas as well as in Gentile areas. He shows his authority over life and death itself. And then he's rejected because isn't this just the carpenter? takeaways to to wrap this up. Um, The main point that Mark appears to be making through this chapter is to emphasize Christ's dominion over all of creation, both the physical world and the spiritual realm. And he did this by casting out demons, healing the sick, overcoming ceremonial laws, and conquering death itself. Again, Christ showed his authority outside of uh, Jewish areas and outside of the Jewish realm in, in showed that he was a savior both for Jews and for Gentiles. Christ came for all, not just the politically connected, the popular, the wealthy. He came for the downcast, the downtrodden, and the broken. Um, if you look at this situation that Jesus was in when he was on his way to Jairus' house, uh, from the world's perspective, the best thing he could have done would be to brush off this unimportant woman so that he could get to the leader of the synagogue's house, and have a great photo op healing this little girl. I mean, this is, this is the way the world does things because this would get you notoriety, it would get you fame, it would get you followers, etc. And that's not at all what Jesus did. Jesus took the time to stop and to minister, to not just heal the woman with the issue of blood physically, but also to minister to her spiritually, to, to bless her, to call her daughter. Um, Probably some of the first words of encouragement from a spiritual leader that she had received in a lot of years due to her ceremonial uncleanliness. And then when he goes to Jairus' house, he sends the crowds away. He only takes three of his disciples and the girl's parents. He's doing everything to hide this under a bush. Uh, And that's very different from how the world operates. But that's because his kingdom was not of this world. Lastly, uh, Romans 8:28, we're all familiar with this verse. It says, "We know that those who love God, excuse me, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose." I think 
Jesus told Jairus in Mark 5:36, do not fear, only believe. I think these words are things that we should remember when we're going through some of those all things that uh, are spoken of in Roman. Sometimes some of those all things are not much fun. Um, Jairus did not understand what God's plan was, but Jesus reassured him that there was a plan and there was a purpose and to continue believing. Again, this is not obviously not to say that God will always uh, step into our circumstances with the same miraculous way that he did into Jairus' circumstances. We don't, he doesn't always rescue us from the situation in a dramatic fashion, but we can have faith that God is working and does have a plan. Sometimes our job is just to rest in the knowledge that God is working, even when we do not understand how, and to trust in God's faithfulness. Do not fear, only believe. I'll go ahead and close this in prayer and then turn it back over to Pastor. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for your power and your dominion over uh, both the physical and the spiritual realm. We thank you for sending your son and your gracious provision for us. We ask that you would draw our hearts closer to you. Help us to um, remember when we are in difficult situations uh, to not fear, only believe. It's in your name we pray.